Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 20th, 2017, Inauguration Day. Our country's opportunity every four or eight years to demonstrate its capacity for peaceful exchange of power. And while much pomp and circumstance will attend the festivities in Washington, D.C., our show will set our sights a bit more locally, taking a look at how the new administration stands to impact the federal appellate courts on the West Coast, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, and in particular whether this circuit, often described as, as liberal by court watchers, will begin to, as Donald Trump begins to fill its vacancies, um, begin to, to drift back towards political center. I'm very pleased to be joined by two terrific guests to pursue this question, including Professor Arthur Hellman, Pittsburgh Law School, who has written and taught extensively on the federal court system, also be joined by Benjamin Schatz, a partner here in Los Angeles with Manat Phelps and Phillips. We'll cover a range of issues, including that main theme, a right word tug on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, we'll get into more specific ones, including a occasionally proposed notion that the Ninth Circuit may be split up, potentially on ideological lines. We'll also talk about the types of nominees likely to be the target of President Trump. And of course, we'll get both of their opinions as to just whether the Ninth Circuit will come out the other side of a Trump presidency retaining its liberal reputation. We'll move into that conversation in just a moment, but first, let me remind you, as always, CLE credit is available for your having listened to this program. Just find a short true-false test on the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble, then we'll get to my conversation with Professor Arthur Hellman and Benjamin Schatz. It's my privilege to welcome two appellate law experts to the podcast. Uh, first, we have Mr. Benjamin Schatz, a partner with Manette Phelps and Phillips, who practices in their appellate section. Mr. Schatz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And from the University of Pittsburgh Law School, we have Professor Arthur Hellman, who has written and taught quite extensively on the issues of federal courts and federal jurisprudence and has appeared before congressional panels to speak about the same. Professor Hellman, welcome to you as well. It's a pleasure to be with you. So at the time that our conversation will air, we'll be uh, just a few hours away from a new presidential administration officially assuming office. And certainly the system of American governments has a, a broad array of institutions and elements that will stand to be affected. One of them of particular interest to our audience is the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Of course, I hear comprising California as well as a, a number of other states and outlying territories as well. And I think the way that this question is framed, how much will the Ninth Circuit change, um, is in, in the form of how much will this generally liberal circuit come closer to the political center. So that will be sort of the theme of our discussion. But before we get into how much it might change, Professor Hellman, I'd like to discuss how it's gained its reputation as the liberal sibling of the circuit courts. Um, how long has it had this reputation and, and how did it earn it, especially considering the fact that over you know, the past few decades, the executive has been controlled in some equal portion by Republicans and, and Democrats. Yes, it's a very interesting bit of history, and it goes back to President Carter, because when President Carter took office in 1977, which was just exactly 40 years ago, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals was a court of 13 judges. Um, only three of them were Democratic appointees, so it was quite a conservative court. But Congress passed an omnibus judgeship bill that gave 13 new judgeships to the Ninth Circuit, and Carter appointed people to every one of those and also filled three existing or, or vacancies that were created. So 
he, he appointed within a very short period of time, he served only one term, of course, 13 out of the 23. And that set a pattern that, that really has never been significantly challenged. The closest uh, Republicans came was at the end of 12 years of Reagan and Bush won, where I think they got up to 15 out of what was then 28. But as soon as that happened, President Clinton took over, and again, the, the Democrats gained a majority on the court. So it's a little bit of history, and somehow the Republicans just can never quite catch up. As we stand presently, what does the composition look like in terms of folks appointed by the different parties? Well, it's now 29 judges. Congress added, shifted one judgeship from the D.C. Circuit, and there are four vacancies. I think that leaves a total of seven Republican appointees, six of the seven, um, Bush 43, and then Judge Kaczynski, I think, is the only pre-Bush pre 43 Republican nominee still active. So it's a very substantial Democratic advantage. I've got sort of an addendum to, to that answer, and, and that is two things. One, when you say that the, the presidents have, have switched sort of regularly uh, and that that should make for equal footing in appointments, um, that overlooks the fact that you, the president only gets appointments when there are, in fact, open seats. And so uh, there hasn't really been a fair uh, apportionment of open seats at the time. For instance, um, you know, between Carter and Bush one, they got seven appointments, there, I, I think, that are, that are still on the court. Um, then when President Clinton came in, he, he got 14. Then when it went to Bush two, he only got seven, and then Obama got seven. So the, the Republicans have been behind, but it's not just because Carter gave the Democrats such a big head start, but because the, the opportunities just haven't been there. Um, in terms of, of the current setup, uh, I also tend to, to count the, the senior judges who are active in the court as well. And if you look at it from that perspective, uh, there are 44 judges uh, on the court, uh, and I count 28 Democrats, uh, Democratic appointments and 16 Republicans. So, the, so there is still that big difference uh, if you're counting all of the uh, senior circuit judges. So no matter how you slice it, we're pretty far from an even split in terms of political appointees. Uh, Mr. Schatz, we might just enunciate this question at the start, and it'll probably sound somewhat naive, I suppose, but I think it's worth at least enunciating here. Uh, what what exactly is the problem with having more appointees from one political party as opposed to the other, considering that at least theoretically we're talking about a branch that will do uh, the neutral task of applying case law to, to facts and just analyzing judicial precedent? I'm not sure I would call it a problem. It's just how, how history and politics develops. Uh, and if you uh, approach it from the perspective that uh, all judges should be neutral and all courts should be politically neutral at all times, then you're misunderstanding the federal court system because the, the presidents are political creatures and they're the ones that have the power of appointment. Uh, so that's, that's just the way the system is, is set up. Uh, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that decisions will be decided on a political or ideological basis. The, the vast majority of cases that work their way through the, uh, of the courts of appeals and, and, frankly, any appellate court, other than the, the Supreme Courts and, and the 
top courts, they're not politically based cases. They're sort of run-of-the-mill appeals, and and politics doesn't play a role in that. Yeah, I would just add, add to that. Uh, probably 90, 95 percent of the cases are going to be decided by this, the same way, no matter who is on the panel. But the cases that people care about, um, those are often going to depend on who is on the panel because the, the law is not settled or the law's application is not settled. And st- studies confirm what I think court observers uh, tend to think, just looking at the decisions, that Republican appointees as a group have a different attitude or predilection in many of these high-profile cases than Democratic appointees as a group. Okay. Um, Maybe getting into discussing the ways in which the Ninth Circuit might change, I think the most natural thought that comes to mind is people assume um, new appointees will be made, and that will tend to start balancing out the political ideology, perhaps. But another, perhaps uh, more drastic change that has been discussed, I think, in the past is actually splitting up physically the the Ninth Circuit into one or or two or perhaps even three discrete chunks, creating essentially new circuits. Um, And Professor Hellman, what what are the the motivations behind such a potential push? And when this issue has been looked at uh, before by congressional committees, what, um, what findings and conclusions have been reached such that a split has not been affected to this point? Well, this is certainly an issue that's been around for a very long time. One of my first jobs was as the um, deputy director of the Commission on Revision of the Federal Court Appellate System, or the Ruska Commission, as it was called after its uh, chairman. And we looked at that uh, after, that's 40 years ago and re- uh, recommended a division of the Ninth Circuit, as well as the Fifth Circuit, which at that time was six southern states, the Fifth Circuit was divided in accordance with our recommendation, but but not the Ninth. And the controversy has consider, continued intermittently over those four decades. There are a number of motivations. I mean, there are, I think there are people who sincerely believe that the Ninth Circuit is just too big to operate efficiently, that uh, the, 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 what was it, 44 uh, judges regularly hearing cases in addition to dozens of uh, visiting judges. It's just a huge number of uh, uh, judges um, in all over the West uh, having case, hearing cases in San Francisco, in Pasadena, Seattle, Hawaii, Anchorage, Phoenix, and so forth occasionally. Um, and that's just too hard to keep everything together. That That is one of the arguments. Um, there are also some people, I think, who are would like to split it for political or ideological reasons, people who think that the the circuit is too heavily dominated by liberal California judges, and they would like to get uh, away from the California influence. So you have these different motivations, different concerns, and I think it's sometimes difficult to sort out what is what is really going on. I think that the motivations in, in the past have almost always been political. Uh, and the fact that the, the Ninth Circuit is so big and is the, the, the slowest circuit statistically in, in uh, resolving cases and has, has, may have other uh, procedural uh, impediments, that, that's really more of an excuse or a, a, an afterthought 
for the attempts to, to split it. Uh, while it's true that, that the circuit is, is very big uh, and does take a long time to resolve cases, uh, it's, it's far from dysfunctional. It it's actually functions quite well in, in many ways. And so uh, I don't think that there are actually procedural or structural problems with, with the circuit that would justify a split. It's, it's really much more a, a political move um, by uh, by senators and 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 to a lesser extent some of the judges w within the circuit I think uh, like the idea of of a split uh, but it of course raises raises the question well how how would how would that happen what would it look like no, I, I do disagree a little bit uh, I, I agree that a lot of the motivation in Congress is 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 political or ideology but I think there are some people who do genuinely believe that. Uh, the operation of uh, the appellate system would be better served by having smaller circuits, circuits more like the other circuits, and that uh, uh, that's, that's apart from the, the ideology. Because, of course, the, the same president appoints the, the judges wherever their, um, whatever the state is, and so the extent to which a, a split of the circuit would actually change the decisions, I think, is open to question. From the perspective of the practicing bar within the Ninth Circuit, I haven't heard uh, a hue and cry over the you know, administrative problems should justify a, a split. Um, I, I, I don't doubt that there, there must be people who, who, who think that way. Um, but, but I don't think that's been the driving motivation of, of at least the past uh, proposals. Professor Hillman, if we were to speak about a potential split being realized and one that sounds like you, you researched in the past, what might that look like? I, I've read that there are some um, potential problems in creating an equitable split if we're talking about size or population because of the state of California it being so much bigger than the other states in the circuit, uh, and that would lead to potential suggestions of either splitting the state and having North be in one circuit and then Southern California being in another, or just making a federal circuit coterminous with the state and then having the rest of the states in their own circuit. Um, has, has California itself been a stumbling block to this potential idea, and are there problems with the idea of either splitting the state or making a, a coterminous federal district with it? Yes, there's no really good way to split the circuit today. There was, I think, a possibility some years ago of creating a circuit of California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, um, you really, that's very hard today because the um, caseload allocation is, is so overwhelmingly in the California part, and that's in part because of the immigration cases, which are mostly from California. You mentioned the two possibilities of dividing California between circuits or making California a circuit of its own. The Hruska Commission, which I uh, mentioned, did recommend dividing a state dividing California between circuits, and I have to say uh, my first law review article was based on a memo I wrote for the commission saying that you could do that without any huge problems, and it persuaded the commission, but it has not persuaded anybody else. The California bar is strongly opposed to dividing the state between circuits, and partly because of that, Senator Feinstein, who is now the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, is strongly opposed. So that whatever um, whatever the merits of that idea, it's politically uh, impossible. California as a 
circuit by itself is a is a bad idea, as every commission that has looked at it has recognized. And the main reason, there are two reasons. One is that the courts of appeals are supposed to be national courts deciding legal issues, and they benefit from the infusion of judges from legal cultures in at least three states, which is true of all circuits except, of course, D.C. But the more important reason is the senators. Senators play a big part in appointments, and it is important that you have three sets of senators with input into the selection process. So Ruska Commission said at least three circuits. The White Commission, which was more recent, said at least three circuits. Oh, sorry, at least three states. And that does make it very difficult to, to carve out a new circuit because you still have a very, very large circuit, uh, including California. California is sort of the, the, the gorilla in the room that, that can't be, be split. I mean, you don't want to split a state. And if you don't want to do that, then where does that leave you? You know, you could do a sort of a Pacific Northwest, Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, Alaska circuit, and then split off California, Nevada, Arizona, and Hawaii with sort of a southern circuit. But then um, you lose the uh, the continuity of the coast to the extent that that is a, an important, relevant factor. Um, but you also don't solve the, the press of, of business problem because it's really the vast majority of the business coming from California. And you'd still have a circuit that uh, has a, a tr- tremendous amount of, of work uh, coming out of California and then this, you know, the new sort of Pacific Northwest circuit uh, wouldn't have that much work. That that was a traditional split, uh, the Pacific Northwest Circuit. And first, the coastal um, have a, a, the idea that you have a, uh, a uniform body of law along the coast is certainly appealing. And yet, I think it was uh, Senator Slade Gorton uh, pointed it out, and more recently, uh, Judge O'Scanlan. You have five circuits along the East Coast, and you don't have barges colliding. People barely notice it. So, um, sure, there's some value to having a uniform law for the uh, uniform federal law for the Pacific Coast, but it can easily be be overstated. The other thing that's occurred to me is that um, you're absolutely right that the um, Southern Circuit would still be very large, but if that doesn't bother the people in the Southern Circuit. There are three states, four states, and apparently it doesn't. And the states of the Northwest would like to be in their own circuit. I'm not sure that there's any real harm in doing that, provided that you could give the Southern Circuit an adequate number of judgeships. And most of the prior proposals have just not done that. So I do think this is something worth looking at, Although I have to add, I don't think anybody now is actually proposing the traditional um, Northwest split. I think one of the bills in Congress is the kind of horseshoe circuit, which would isolate California, and the other would take the inland uh, states plus uh, Alaska. And each of those poses poses problems. So it's you know we can talk about the theoretical possibilities but I'm not sure that there, there's any good political solution on the horizon. That last idea of splitting the circuit potentially 
between inland states and coastal states, which is a, a line of demarcation that um, roughly tracks where political ideologies begin to, to change between those states. Um, one Supreme Court Justice, Anthony Kennedy, has been behind the idea of splitting the Ninth Circuit up, but has noted that doing it based on political ideology would, would be a bad idea and that neutral factors should predominate such a discussion and task, like things like size and geography. Um, it just seems like there is some tension behind the reason why the politicians or people want this to happen. And then I suppose the, the way that someone like Anthony Kennedy thinks that it should be done. Um, is there is there something to his point that political um, ideology should not play a role? And how does that map on to the fact that some of the propositions like the inland and coastal state divide um, is what, what is proposed, Professor? Well, that was a, a novel um, suggestion when it first was floated, or I guess more than floated, it's a bill that was introduced in the last Congress uh, just about a year ago now. I mean, I thought people had come up with all the possible splits, and and, and that was, uh, that's a, a new one. But it does raise the, the point that Justice Kennedy was, was concerned about. You have you would have then the um, West Coast Circuit, the Coastal Circuit, four states uh, with uh, two Democratic senators in all four of those states, and the the, the new Twelfth Circuit would have would have a mix, would have you know, some Republican and some Democratic. But it, it would be the idea of a cir- creating creating a new circuit with four blue states right away, I would think people ought to think very carefully. Do they really want to do that? Yeah, politics should not play a role in the, in creating the, the boundaries of the circuit. Could you speak more about, about why, why you think so? Well, to, to, to harken back to one of your original points, the, the, the court system is not supposed to be uh, politically motivated in that way. Uh, and so it, it doesn't really make sense to, to do that. I think that would strike everybody as, as sort of improper to use that as the basis for figuring out which circuits are going to be lumped together. Uh, Whether or not it's improper, I, I think it's um, it would not make for as effective an appellate judiciary. You really would like to have a mix of people on the court, a mix in every possible uh, relevant way. And the judges from the red states or the red or purple states uh, in the Ninth Circuit add something significant to the mix of judges. They bring different perspectives. They come from different political traditions. And I think that's the strength of the circuit. And we'd lose something of that if we ended up with a four-state circuit, a large four-state circuit, to be sure, um, with with states that have voted uh, Democratic, I think, in all of the last several presidential elections, and which now have no Republican senators to, to uh, influence the selection process. One last one on the idea of a split. I'd like to get the opinion of both of you, Mr. Schatz. First, do you think that... Um, this idea will get enough momentum during the, the Trump administration to to be realized? I don't think so. Uh, I think there are going to be a lot more other things going on in the next four years than how to uh, rearrange the Ninth Circuit. 
Well, I, I, I don't think the Trump administration is going to be very interested in it. Whether some of the senators are interested enough to hold hearings, to uh, um, to issue press releases, to to try to uh, get support from bar associations, I think that's possible. But I think they too have so many other priorities that I think we might see a hearing or two in one house or the other. But I, I would not expect it to go much further than that. So perhaps a split is unlikely, but something that is certain is that President Trump will nominate a number of judges to serve in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, Professor Hellman, you've noted that these new appointees and uh, a somewhat rightward shift of the circuit will have its greatest effects when it comes to en banc um, matters and en banc petitions and, and then en banc cases being heard. Um, could you explain that a bit further? Yeah, so I should just say at the outset, it, it would be a, a process over time. There are four vacancies at this time, and I don't think those filling those four vacancies will have uh, a, a substantial effect on in banks or, or anything else. You need more, uh, more, um, more new judges to do that. But the Ninth Circuit, uh, unique among these circuits, um, does not have all of its active judges sit on in-bank cases. It has the chief judge, who is now a, a chief judge Thomas, a, a liberal judge from Montana, and 10 judges selected at random from the other active judges. Um, but all of the active judges continue to vote on whether to take a case in-bank. And most of the time, not always, but most of the time, judges vote to take a case in-bank because they think the panel decision was wrong. So they expect and hope that the in-bank court will decide the other way. The more judges on the court who are from the minority side, the greater the odds that the in-bank panel will decide the case the same way as the three-judge panel. And I would think that that might make judges just a little bit less uh, willing to vote for in-bank if they think that the in-bank court might simply reaffirm the panel results with the stature of an in-bank decision rather than a three-judge decision. But nothing like that is going to happen with uh, with only four appointees. It's, it's still a predominantly, will still be a predominantly liberal court. Mr. Schatz, maybe we could just unpack those four vacancies a little bit further because I think it's interesting to take a look. One of them is, will be left by uh, Dearman O'Scanlan, the circuit's most conservative jurist, and then and then two of them are left by Judges Silverman and Clifton, who are regarded as moderates. So it might be true that a Republican administration and Senate will fill four vacancies, but they'll be replacing somewhat conservative or moderate folks. So just starting with those four, how much of an ideological shift is is possible considering the departures? Well, I, I agree with Professor Hellman. Just four, four seats isn't going to make a huge difference. Uh, it may play out more importantly in the en banc process where the new four judges will have a voice, uh, but uh, simply replacing one one uh, liberal Pragerson and, and one conservative O'Scanlan and, and, and two moderates with uh, four, four new voices, even if they're all uh, conservative, uh, I just don't think is going to make that big of a, of a difference. Well, and the other thing we have to uh, keep in mind here is there are limits to how conservative the nominees can be, because right. in three of the states, Hawaii, 
California and Oregon, as I mentioned before, you have two Democratic senators who effectively have a veto over who is, is appointed. And so President Trump will not be able to appoint a, a hardcore uh, conservative to any of those three. So at most, he has some leeway in Arizona with two Republican senators. So that further diminishes the likelihood that these appointments will shift the court to, to the right in any significant way. Professor Hellman, could you tell me a bit more about that effective veto that home senators have? Is that just a, a practice of, of courtesy in the Senate that senators are able to give sort of the last vote on approving judges that will be in there, serving the circuit in their state? Yes, it, it is a courtesy. It's a practice. It's not part of any rule. It's the, the so-called blue slip process whereby the senators from the state where the, the seat is being filled have to return a blue slip to the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee before the nomination will be considered. But it is a tradition um, from time to time. I think uh, Senate Judiciary Committee chairmen have departed from it, but it's been pretty strong over the years. And there have been some um, nominations to the Ninth Circuit that have been derailed because the home state senator uh, vetoed it. And I think uh, Senator Grassley, who is the um, ch- chairman now, is likely to respect that. Although, you know, it's one of the things that is is really somewhat up in the air. I, I could see a situation where the um, if you had a number of nominees who were rejected by home state senators, that the Senator Grassley would decide he's, he's not going to adhere rigorously to that rule. But but for now, I think that, that, that really does limit uh, the extent to which uh, President Trump could change the ideological complexion of the circuit. His ability to do so certainly depends somewhat on the, just the number of vacancies he will be able to fill. Mr. Schatz, this involves some prognostication, but to the extent you'd be uh, interested in, in forecasting, do you have any any thoughts or guesses as to just how many seats might come open during um, his four or eight years? Uh, <laughs> that that is hard to to predict, um, but it wouldn't be surprising if if uh, somebody took senior status uh, al- along the way. Um, I'm not gonna gonna name names, but anybody <laughs> can pull up the seniority list on on the Ninth Circuit's webpage and see who the the, the possible players are. Um, I'm not aware of anybody who's been making rumblings about going senior and, and opening up a spot. Um, but you never know what can happen over the course of, of four years. Uh, people can have life, life-changing events uh, that can uh, impel them towards something like that. Uh, and uh, it, it, I, I think that's just too difficult to predict. But uh, if, you, if you had to pin me to a number, I'd say, sure, may, maybe one or two seats might might open up. I'll add a couple of things to that. I, I, it's very difficult to uh, to predict. There are quite a few who are eligible um, right now. Some I saw a list a while back. It's a very substantial number who are eligible. But it occurs to me that one of the things that might um, influence some eligible judges who are, who are on the fence about doing it will be the kind of people uh, President Trump appoints to these four positions. 
I think a lot of people are very concerned about the kind of people that are, President Trump might might appoint. But Absolutely. if they turn out to be, um, you know, respected, you know, not ideological, um, highly regarded people, I, I think some of the judges who've been hanging on for a while might say, okay, I can take senior status and uh, it's not going to be a disaster for the court uh, uh, because of the person who replaces me. Some of that worry springs from the list of potential Supreme Court justice nominees that President Trump circulated before the November election. Mr. Schatz, you, you mentioned in the article that the Daily Journal published on this same topic that perhaps people shouldn't read too much into to that list, which included some folks that were um, fairly polar when it comes to political ideology. Uh, why do you think that that should necessarily cause too much worry? Well, that list and, and, and its various iterations came out during the campaigning. And so I think that you know politicians take a different view when they're trying to, to garner votes uh, than when they actually have the power and, and have to make the decision. So I, I, I wouldn't say that the, that list is necessarily a template for, for how the new president uh, would, would view his uh, selection, especially for the, the courts of appeals as opposed to the Supreme Court. I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court is such a high-profile, important uh, decision that uh, to the extent that, that any president is going to spend time on concerning uh, with the judiciary, it's going to be focused on, on the Supreme Court and then only to a lesser extent on the, on the Court of Appeal. And also for the Supreme Court spot, there's only one seat available. And so uh, it's important that, that that choice be precisely the right choice, whatever that means from the president's perspective, as opposed to having uh, four seats in, in a circuit, which provides a, a lot more wiggle room for, for compromise. Uh, and we are talking about the, uh, the, the great businessman who, who is a wheeler dealer. So who knows how that will shake out. Well, let me just add uh, two things to that. One, we've already been talking about the role of the senators, which is quite important in this, this process, and uh, the, the senators in turn consult the, the legal communities in, uh, in, in their own state. But the other thing is that a number of the legal people on President Trump's team already are from big law firms, firms that practice uh, commercial law and uh, do the kind of financially important cases, those lawyers will care very deeply about having quality people on the bench. And so this is not something I would think that the president would become involved with, um, except at the very end of the process. And I would think the people who are advising him would come up with, with a group of people who have the, the relatively traditional profiles for circuit judges. Mr. Schatz, you also noticed in the article, speaking of traditional suspects, that um, Trump might look, look beyond the folks that you might tend to see nominated for these positions. What, uh, what did you mean by that, and what sorts of unusual people or, or different sorts of uh, nominees do you think he might seek out? Well, the, the usual suspects are sitting district court judges, because there you have uh, people who are already federal judges who have, who have created uh, uh, a history for themselves uh, and would naturally be considered possibly for elevation. Uh, but lately, we've had a lot more non-traditional choices. We've had um, justices from state Supreme Court, from the Alaska Supreme Court, and from the Arizona Supreme Court going directly to the, to the Ninth Circuit. 
Uh, and we've also had a number of private practitioners going directly from law firms uh, straight uh, to the Ninth Circuit without ever having been a judge at all. Uh, and we also had uh, a professor that was uh, nominated for the Ninth Circuit, uh, didn't, didn't make it there, but ended up uh, on the California Supreme Court. Uh, so those are what I was thinking about when I was pondering non-traditional uh, appointees. Uh, and, and as Professor Hellman just pointed out, there are lots of lawyers advising uh, the, the president-elect, uh, and I'm sure that they have ideas about which firms they might like to, to select from if they're going into private, from the private practice angle. Um, there are also various organizations uh, that are uh, involved in the process. The, the Federalist Society was providing lists to, to, and, and ideas to the president, and so it wouldn't surprise me if somebody from, from that group uh, got the nod. Uh, and, and so I, I think that the field is, is fairly wide open. Uh, we, I think despite the, the checks and balances of, of advisors and, and senators, uh, we, we have, uh, we'll be seeing a president who I think is, is a very independent thinker, not necessarily ideological, uh, and could pick uh, uh, from, from a wide variety of sources. So I, I think it could become very interesting. Well, I agree with that. The only thing I'll note is that this current trend, or what was the trend until very recently of appointing um, sitting judges to courts of appeals, and indeed often appointing magistrate judges to district judge positions, that's a relatively recent development. I mean, historically, uh, the, the uh, people appointed to courts of appeals have often been appointed from private practice or even from political um, uh, careers, so that the idea of a kind of career judiciary is something that in the past uh, America has sort of stayed away from. And I think it would be quite healthy to go back to that older tradition whereby uh, you don't spend your life as a judge training to be a judge, that we have on the bench a real diversity of professional experiences and certainly the, the experience of, of practicing in the uh, private sector uh, the recently recent appointment uh, over the weekend actually to the New York Court of Appeals of uh, a fellow who actually has a Ninth Circuit connection. He was a law clerk to the late uh, Chief Judge Tim Browning, um, just appointed to the New York Court of Appeals, and the the bar there has been very happy because this is a person who spent his his life in a commercial practice, and that's a very important court for commercial cases. And I think the federal uh, appellate judiciary benefits from from that kind of appointment also. So if, if President Trump, uh, President-elect Trump does move in that direction, I think many lawyers would see that as a healthy development. One thing we haven't mentioned yet is that uh, the, the president-elect has a sister who is a circuit judge. And that's, uh, at the very least, an interesting development. I, I, I doubt that's ever happened before. Uh, and so to the extent that he is thinking about the circuit, um, you'd think that she might have some, some influence or at least um, the experience, her experiences may, may play a role in how he views circuits with respect to appointments and, and splits and anything else. We've been speaking about the ways in which the ideology of this, the circuit might change going forward, but um, 
in the past few years, I've heard the idea posed that because President Obama has faced a fairly contentious Senate, his nominees to the circuit have become more moderate and thus able to, to make it through Senate confirmation. So is there anything behind the notion that the ideology of the circuit has already begun um, to swing more towards the center? Uh, Mr. Schatz, you can wait. Um, sure. I, I, think, I think that's true. I mean, the, the, when, when Goodwin Liu didn't make it through, uh, I think that sent a strong message that the Senate was going to uh, play hardball with this. And so uh, as a result, we ended up with, um, you know, rather than some, some academics and people on the liberal side, we, we got more of the uh, traditional practitioner nominees. And, and they are a little bit more uh, moderate. Uh, and, and some even come from, you know, prosecutorial backgrounds uh, on the government side. So, yes, that there has been a, a, a move towards, you know, away from, away from the liberal side, more towards the, the moderate side. This question, in my mind, seems to take on some special significance after this election, considering that cities in the state of California and the state itself have been in various means and through various avenues, voiced some intention to resist certain policies of the incoming administration. Um, do you think that idea and, and that fact is in the minds of either the, uh, the new president or senators that would be cognizant of the fact that um, challenges to such resistance might end up in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals? Professor Hellman? Well, I, I think it is going to occur to him, to occur to them. I mean, it's interesting that so many of the challenges to the current administration's policies have been filed in Texas, and I don't think that's a coincidence. And I suspect that um, challenges to the new administration's policies are likely to be filed in, in California or, or other states of the Ninth Circuit. And I would think we're we can expect some questions about that. Of course, the nominees will will give no useful information, uh, whatever, about how they would uh, respond to these. But I think it will start to be on senators' minds, especially if we see even one or two high-profile cases being filed in a you know, central district of California or a district of uh, western district of Washington, challenging some policy of the Trump administration. Speaking of filling these four vacancies, we're presuming the point, it seems, that uh, one pending nomination, Judge D uh, District Judge Lucy Coe, will, um, will not be expected to be confirmed. Uh, Mr. Schatz, do you think that that's the most likely outcome, that uh, her nomination from Obama will, will not uh, uh, bear any fruit here? Well, that, that's probably true if, to the extent that the new administration will, will want to start fresh. Um, but to the extent that the the California senators have anything to, to do with it, which they do, they they might uh, press forward with with Judge Coe. Um, she's a very strong candidate, and the, of course her husband's on the California Supreme Court, which is a, a nice little side note. Mm. Uh, and so it's it's conceivable again with the the art of the deal in play that that maybe she would uh, be able to get elevated, uh, and then. Uh, Concomitantly, the, the Trump administration would uh, pick somebody a little bit different that they that they would want for one of the other seats. Uh, there's flexibility when when you've got multiple seats in play. Um, so I wouldn't counter out entirely, but it, it does seem uh, unlikely. I'd say it's quite unlikely unless you have 
the, the kind of uh, um, package deal you mentioned would, I think, be possible only if there were multiple California seats, and we don't have that at this point. Then beginning to wrap up here, if there is a, a shift to some extent in the circuit's political ideology that would obviously come to bear on certain important cases and issues in the circuit, Professor Hellman, what are some of the most significant issues currently before the Ninth Circuit? I know there's a non-bank gun rights case and, and certainly other important issues. The cases that I think are most directly um, influenced by what we call ideology are first uh, habeas corpus cases where the Ninth Circuit has a record of being reversed by the Supreme Court, um, Section 1983 civil rights cases, to a lesser extent, um, employment discrimination and consumer protection. I mean, those are four areas where the, the Ninth Circuit has, I think, earned its, its liberal reputation, and those are the areas where you could see a very gradual shift as Trump appointees uh, um, play, play a role in the court's decisions. But as we've been saying from the beginning, it's going to take quite a while before, before you, the, the effect is really felt in circuit law. Maybe one last one to wind up. Uh, Mr. Schatz, do you think when we come out the other side of this Trump administration, either in four or eight years, as the case may be, that the Ninth Circuit will still maintain its reputation as the, the most liberal circuit? I, I, think, it, I think it probably will. Uh, a reputation is a hard thing to shake, even when it's not deserved. For a long time, the Ninth Circuit had this reputation as the, the circuit that was always going to get reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And you could play with statistics and make it seem that way. And yet, if, if you give it a harder view, uh, there was a lot more going on there than just the, the Supreme Court hates the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the, the bulk of the, the cases that the Ninth Circuit had, I mean, the, the, the quantity uh, resulted in many cases going to the Supreme Court. And it wasn't necessarily because the decisions were all wrong and coming out of you know, left coast liberal judges. Uh, but simply that, th that those cases were, were there. Uh, and so there was a greater opportunity for, for cases to go up and then uh, get, get reversed. Um, over the years, if you look at the stats, I think that the Ninth Circuit definitely has, has shaken that um, on paper, and yet people still seem to think that way. Uh, so I, I think that having had this reputation over a number of decades, uh, it will continue uh, for a while, uh, even after, even if there really were a change, which I'm not sure there there, there would be in any event. Professor Hellman, do you agree that uh, in, in four or eight years we'll still be speaking about a, a liberal Ninth Circuit? I think the, the odds are that we will be. I, I agree that the um, the reputation is, is, is hard to shake, uh, whether or not the, the facts uh, support it. I do think that for a period of time, the, the reputation as the most reversed circuit was justified. There were several terms, for example, where uh, the, the Ninth Circuit accounted, as it generally does, for about one-sixth of the cases decided by the courts of appeals. It accounted for about one-third of the cases the Supreme Court was taking from the circuits. But the last few years, uh, the Federal Circuit, to some degree, and the Sixth Circuit has been proportionately reversed as much, but, but people don't talk about that. It'll take more than four or eight years, I think, to change people's perceptions. 
Okay, well, uh, well, certainly changes to the Ninth Circuit are one of many set to uh, be realized over the, the next few months and years. Um, it's a pleasure to speak with you both about this topic. Professor Arthur Hellman from Pittsburgh Law, Mr. Benjamin Chats from Manat Phelps and Phillips. Thanks to you both for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank it's you very pleasure. much. And it was, it was a real honor to be able to, to share the panel with uh, Professor Hellman, whose, whose work I've admired for many years. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's uh, been great uh, participating in this. And with that, our program for January 20th, 2017, Inauguration Day, is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Professor Arthur Hellman, and Benjamin Schatz. Thanks also go out to my production staff here, including Ellen Ireland, Nick Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.